Um, let us pray. Fathers, we open the Bible today and, and uh, examine your word. We pray that you would illumine our, our minds, but also our hearts, that indeed your Holy Spirit would open our hearts to come to understand uh, the meaning and how we uh, implement uh, today's words in, in practice. So, Lord, be with us. Uh, grant us understanding. We just pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, so far, this is the seventh sermon in a series on the Ten Commandments, and again, it's appropriate to acknowledge the work of the Reverend John de Hoog, who is uh, currently a senior lecturer at the Reformed Theological College, now based in Melbourne, formerly of John, um, uh, for his work. And so today we're going to be talking about sacred living, and this is on the Sixth Commandment, and I get the shortest reading of all, Exodus 20, 13, and you probably don't have to speed to it too quickly, you shall not murder. All right. Um, but I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open at the two passages that Francois has taken us through. That's in Matthew. We want to minimise the law and its effects on us and how it might apply to us. And we treat the law like it's the edge of a small circle. And we might say, here is a line you can't cross, but everything outside of that circle is fair enough. We can do that. So it's our natural inclination to shrink the law and how it applies to us. Now it's, it's natural for us and it starts very young and this is the time when I get to use one of those hypothetical examples about children in the sky that says the names have been changed to protect the guilty. So just imagine that Luke and Georgina are fighting and you put a stop to it and you say, if you lay one more finger on your sister, I will punish you. But five minutes later, they're fighting again, but this time they're kicking each other. And you'll say, what did I say to you five minutes ago? And they said, well, you only spoke about laying fingers on her, so, you know, I'm okay. It's not about kicking. So, might be a silly example, but it shows you know, the reality of our world about pure legalism, how we like to enjoy the legal part of making sure we follow the exact words rather than the spirit of the intent. And so in that case, and in our own lives, we like to shrink the law that has been laid down to minimise its impact on our free life. But in, this, in the passages that we have read today, we see that Jesus does the opposite thing. And so imagine the law about murder, in our mind, is like a very small circle on a very large white piece of paper. And in our mind, as long as we don't touch that circle or cross over that line or as long as we don't even touch the edge of that line, as long as we don't actually pull out a knife and stab someone and kill them, I'm okay. I actually haven't committed murder. And I can live somewhere outside of that circle on that vast expanse of that white piece of paper and think that I'm okay and that I have not broken the Sixth Commandment. But Jesus takes that circle and he expands it until it touches every piece of that paper and he expands it until we can't find a place to live on that paper without admitting that I and you are murderers. Now, so that's the hook. How does Jesus reach this conclusion? How can he fill up the law in this way? I've got to ask the question, is that a fair interpretation 
And then finally, if so, what does this mean for us? So if you see on the back of your bulletin, I'd like to uh, sort of cover this topic across three topics, uh, across three subheadings. Firstly, that human life is sacred. The second sub-bulletin is that people are sacred. And I think the third, which is probably the most important part, is that we should practice sacred living. So the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, is laid down as part of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And even though it's not far into the actual volume of the Bible, it's a, you know, it's a little ways into the history of the, what we've seen, but the principle is much older. The very first human being born of a mother was a murderer. Cain, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, the hope of his parents, the one who should have gone on to lead the next generation into serving and loving God, is instead cursed by God because he kills his own brother Abel. God tells Cain that he hears the blood of Abel crying out from, uh, to him from the ground. So right from the very start, we can understand that murder is a heinous crime. Now Genesis 9 records a new start for human beings. So it's after the flood and God lays out how things will be from now on. Humankind must produce human life and must protect human life. First, we must produce human life, and from verse 1 we read, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And then further in verse 7 we saw, As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. And second, we must protect human life, and human life we produce under God's blessing we must protect. And why is this? Because human life is sacred. It's not like anything else. It's not a plant. It's not like animal life. It's not like sea life. It's not like microbial life. It's different. Human life is sacred. So what does that, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that human life is sacred? Well, it means two things. Firstly, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. If you look at verse 5 in that Genesis passage, it says, For your lifeblood I will demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. So notice the repetition. Three times God says he will demand an accounting. He will require that the account be paid, a life for a life, even from an animal. It might be, sound a bit strange to you, but God has concerned that even an animal taking, of taking a life of a human being, if God is concerned when an animal, which might be acting from instinct, kills a person, how much more accountable and concerned is God for a human being who kills someone else? So why this accountability? Well, why? Because human life doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. It's like if someone lends you a beautiful car for a holiday and says, treat it like your own. Would you? If you had a car that uh, sits outside here and has got dents all over it and scratches and every week there's a a new feature, um, perhaps they wouldn't even think of lending you a car. Or suppose the church treasurer gives you the weekly offering and says, take this to the bank on Monday. You don't go out on the town on Monday morning 
treat yourself to a lovely breakfast, do a bit of shopping and then bank whatever's left over. No, that money is given to you in a sacred trust and the church would expect that down to the last five cent gets put into the bank. It's sacred because it doesn't belong to you, it, doesn't, it belongs to someone else. So that's what God is telling us. So here in this passage, God gives human beings meat, meat to eat, but he prohibits eat, uh, eating of meat with its lifeblood still in it. Listen to the way that God speaks to us in verse 2. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the beast birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea that are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants. I now give you everything, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. So God gives all living things to humans. He's saying that they're all given into your hands. They can kill them and they can eat them, but not the blood. The blood must be drained from the meats before the people can eat it. Now, why is this so? Well, because the blood belonged to God. And the Old Testament law repeated this again and again. Drain the blood before you eat the meat. And there's a reason why for that. The blood, which belongs to God, could be used for sacrifices only. So here God was teaching Israel that atoning sacrifices that used blood were God was a gift from God to his people, not their gift to God. So here is the first way that human life is, sac- is sacred. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. You will be accountable to its owner, accountable to God, if you take it or damage it. Now here's a second reason why human life is sacred. Every human being is made in God's image. Verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. Now perhaps as a little demonstration of this, I have a picture here. It's of Chris Clark. It's a lovely photo, probably from his younger days, and uh, you know, it's, it's a great image. And we like Chris. You know, he's a nice guy. He's leader in the church. We should, you know, look up to him. We should follow him. And I'm sure Mary thinks a lot of Chris as well. And so, you know, an image has value. But you know, images can have things done to them. Sorry, Chris. Um, But we need to think about that in terms of God's image. Every human being is in God's image. Everyone bears God's stamp. Everyone reveals something about God in a way that nothing else can. And attacking the image of God is like attacking God himself. Just as it might be shocking for me to tear up a picture of my wife, and Karma would be quite rightly horrified if I actually did that, God is horrified when we take human life. Human life is sacred for two reasons according to this passage we read before. Because it belongs to God, not to us, and because we are all made in the image of God. And to attack a human being or to damage a human being is also an attack on God. So here again is our first point. Human life is sacred. It's sacred because it belongs to God and because human life 
bears God's image. Now, this is a little bit abstract, and to say a thing like human life is sacred. So perhaps we need to drill this down a little bit further into this. So let's move on to the second point, that people are sacred. You can't leave the sacredness of human life up there as a principle. It has to mean something to us in life from day to day. So Jesus drills this principle home in a stunning way in the Sermon on the Mount. What he does is not new. He's simply explaining what the sixth commandment means. But he explains it in a fashion that is devastating to the the hearers at the time and should be devastating to us. Because just by hearing, you shall not murder, sounds like an easy thing to to comply with. I haven't murdered anyone as far as I was aware. But when we read Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 22, we soon are convicted of this sin. So let's uh, read it again. And this is a a slightly different version to the ESV. So Matthew 5:22, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be sub- subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, the word in the, in the original text, rucker, means something like blockhead or knucklehead or idiot or slacko or something like that. So Jesus gave us, gives us three examples of what the command against murder means. The, these ways of demeaning others or nursing a grudge against someone or coming, calling someone an idiot or a fool reveals a heart attitude that in God's sight is like murder. Just as the next passage talked about, just as looking at a woman lustfully and in committing adultery with her in your heart is adultery, Jesus goes on in the next, uh, as Jesus said in the next section on the Sermon on the Mount, so is hating and demeaning others. It's committing murder against them in your heart. So I think Jesus is saying two things here. He is saying that anger is the root of murder. That is, anger, if it's left unchecked, will lead to murder. The case of Cain and Abel is a great example. But he's saying more. He's saying that this principle, this commandment against murder, must come down to earth. It must be expressed in everyday relationships, in the everyday relationships with your brothers, with your sisters, with your friends, with the people you meet every day. Not only is human life sacred, but people are sacred. So in explaining the meaning of the Sixth Commandment, the Heidelberg Catechism puts it like this. So if you're familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, depending on what church you've grown up in, question 105, what is God's will for you in the Sixth Commandment? The answer, I am not to belittle, insult, hate or kill my neighbour. Not by my thoughts, my words, my looks or a gesture and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. Question 107 of the Heidelberg Catechism. But is it enough that when we do not kill our neighbour in such a way? Uh, No. The answer is no. By condemning evil hatred, envy and anger, 
God tells us to love our neighbours as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful and friendly to them, to protect them from harm as much as we can and to do good even to our enemies. And that last section is probably the hardest. Love your enemies, do good to your enemies. This is what I mean by the illustration that Jesus, uh, when he takes the small circle on the page and says, do not murder, that small circle that we think we can easily live with, he has suddenly expanded so that it touches every part of that paper. So there's no for us to live on that piece of paper without having to admit that we are murderers. Not only is human life sacred in a general sense, but we we must also say that people are sacred, the people we meet every day, the people who come into our lives. God calls us to love them as he has loved us. We must love them because they are made in the image of God. So let's roll on to our third point here about practising sacred living. When we apply the sixth commandment, we're normally itchy to say something about abortion or suicide or euthanasia or war or capital punishment or any other sort of topic related to that. And we should. We should do that. It's important. But that's not necessarily the place to start. The place to start is with our own heart. The place to start is with our own life. Everyone who comes into your life in some way must be honoured and valued. You break the sixth commandment when you treat other people with coldness, with indifference, when you don't care one way or another about them. Do people feel warmth from you? Do people feel as though you value them when you meet them? Now we live in a world with people who are made in the image of God. What does this mean? When you meet someone new, do you size them up and think to yourself, Will it be a burden to me to know them? Or will it be an advantage for me to know them? What, what could I get out of this relationship? Or do you prefer to hang out with the so-called beautiful people and you know, leave the difficult people alone? Do you think about how knowing this person or being a friend with a certain uh, person can help you get by in life and make you feel better about yourself? Or do you make snap judgments about people based on first impressions? Or do you steer away from those who you think you can't handle, you just don't like this sort of personality? Or do you come to the conclusion that perhaps it's just not worth investing my time in them? And perhaps if I give you a little you know, snapshot from my occasional experience of being in the military, is that when you move town, and this is a particular, can be a phenomenon in Canberra, which is a very transient town, especially with young public servants, but certainly military moving in and out, if, they, uh, if, if you meet someone in a new town or even Canberra, they might say, oh, what do you do? I'm in the military. And they go, hmm, we'll be posted out in three years' time. It's that, how much time do I invest in this person? Do I really bother getting to know them? Because, you know, they're going to leave in three years. What's the point? Um, you know, it, it's, that, it's that judgment about, eh, is this person important? And I'd say that is the wrong approach, that everyone, no matter whether they're passing through this church briefly or here for a long time, is certainly worthy of developing a relationship with 
and worthy of treating as, uh, them as a real human. And that's not an ad for me about t- today's experience in MAFRA, um, and certainly we have been very welcomed here, and I'm glad of it. Human life, people, people are important and precious to God. Certainly this means we must not murder. But when we follow Jesus in thinking about the further implications of the sacredness of human life, then none of us can live on that page that we think we can exist on. We are all murderers in God's eyes. We have all failed to love others and we have all attacked God in a way when we have dealt with his image bearers in the world. That's a bit confronting. God's calling us murderers. But let's, uh, let's move on from what seems like bad news and look at what is the good news. How does God deal with us? How does God deal with us, those who have attacked him? Well, he does it in surprisingly, uh, a surprising way. He makes himself vulnerable to further attack, freely, graciously, unbelievably, sovereignly. He submits to the most unspeakable attack that we could imagine. Jesus God the Son, to whom all human life belongs, takes on human form, lives a human life amongst those who attack God, is himself attacked, and as a human, and as a human being, gives up his life. He is the perfect image of God, the only perfect image of God who has ever lived on this planet, and yet he was assaulted beyond whatever, beyond what any other human image bearer of God has ever had to suffer. But on that cross he cried out, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Now they did not know what they were doing. They did not know that they were killing the Son of God. And indeed, when Peter went on to explain to them on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 of them were cut to the heart and turned to Jesus and became his followers. But they did not become followers of a dead man, for Jesus has risen from the dead. He has defeated death, and Jesus lives today and is continuing to call people who continue to attack him and repent. He calls them to repent and believe and have faith in him and receive new life instead of death that we all deserve. So the question that faces us all is, will you practice sacred living? The kind of living that begins by turning to Jesus Christ, admitting that you have assaulted him in the way that you have been treating other people, repenting of that and trusting Jesus that he will forgive you and launch you into a new life of sacred living. So once a start is made with Jesus, sacred living means then means treating human life in a general sense and then the people in your life specifically as sacred so we've just heard how this mean, what this means to us at a heart level. So maybe it's a basis for us to answer some of the big questions. What about suicide? Is it okay to commit suicide? Well, the answer is clearly no. You don't own your own life. You don't create your life. Your life doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And so only he has rights over it. What about abortion? If life is from and belongs to God, and if that baby is being formed in God's image inside the womb, would you dare attack it? And euthanasia, the sort of same thinking applies. 
If your own life is your own to do with as we wish, then certainly there could be no objection to assisting someone suffering to die. But life is not our own. It indeed belongs to God. So winding up here, human life belongs to God. It's in his hands. And you are not your own because God created you. And if you belong to Jesus, if you belong to God, you are doubly not your own because you have been bought at a price. You've been bought at a great price. How important it is then to do all we can to practice sacred living, to value and to honour all people. People are God's precious cargo in his hands. Now, all of us, no matter how old or how young, how depressed or how vibrant or how beautiful or how ugly or how crushed by life, and and getting crushed by life comes in so many different forms as we've just prayed today, whether it's illness, disability, grief, unfulfilled desires. So whether we're being crushed by life, all of us are mirrors reflecting something of God. Will you dare tear up that photograph? Will you dare smash the mirror? Will you dare destroy the image? Brothers and sisters, see how God calls us murderers, but see how he has paid the price for our sin and see how he has called us to practice sacred living. So let's go forward and practice sacred living. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue to work through the Ten Commandments, we see how there's such a a deep level to just uh, what you require of us, and it's just beyond the mere surface-level reading the words. Lord, we just pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would uh, understand the meaning behind these uh, these words, and indeed, Lord, that you would uh, convict us of our sin, but indeed we would see how Jesus has uh, fulfilled the law and has taken the punishment for our sin. Lord, be with us this, be with us this week as we go forward and in our, in our daily lives that we might practice sacred living, that we might recognise uh, the image of God and your creation uh, in your people. So Lord, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.